Welcome to the PCC Podcast, your place for CNS soundbites. I am John Shelton, publisher of the Primary Care Companion for CNS Disorders. In this episode, I'll bring you up to date on the important peer-reviewed research and reviews from our latest issue. Let's get started. Benzodiazepine drugs and other sedative hypnotics are commonly prescribed to patients with mental illness. However, little is known about the effects of these drugs in patients with psychiatric disorders. Currently, there are no comprehensive guidelines for sedative hypnotic use in patients with mental illness. Sedative hypnotic use increases the risk of car crashes by 60% and is associated with falls and fractures in the elderly. Patients taking sedative hypnotics are 4.5 times more likely to die from any cause compared to those not taking these medications. While opioids are the cause of most unintentional deaths, sedative hypnotics are the most common concomitant agents discovered during autopsy. Recognizing these risks, in January 2014, the San Francisco Department of Public Health Community Behavioral Health Services implemented an intervention to decrease the rates of chronic sedative hypnotic prescriptions. The intervention consisted of provider education, coordination of care with other providers, guideline development, and staff education spanning a two-year time period. This study analyzes pre-intervention, intervention intervention and post-intervention chronic sedative hypnotic prescription rates. Read this timely article to find out more. Use of second-generation antipsychotics or SGAs for the treatment of depression has increased, and patients with depression and comorbid diabetes are more likely to use these therapies than patients without these conditions. This study explored the comparative effects of second-generation antipsychotics and other depression therapies on the risk of diabetes hospitalizations or diabetes drug intensification in adults with depression and comorbid diabetes. This was an observational cohort study that used data from commercially insured patients in the United States from 2009 to 2015. The authors used high-dimensional propensity score matching to adjust for potential confounding factors such as diabetes and depression severity. There was no difference comparing SGAs to other non-SGA therapies on risks of events, although modest differences were seen with individual drug-drug class comparisons. Overall, there was a lack of strong evidence for selection of one medication over another. The overall impact of SGAs on diabetes control depends not only on direct effects on glucose metabolism, but also on effectiveness of depression symptom relief. Further studies evaluating other diabetes outcomes, such as glycolated hemoglobin and diabetes complications, are needed. This study was supported by the National Institute of Mental Health. Significant disparities in quality of health care delivered to individuals with serious mental illness has been reported possibly due to health care providers' negative attitudes and low expectations for treatment in these individuals. The objective of this study was to explore the mediational effects of prejudice on the relationship between negative stereotypes and social distance or discrimination in a sample of Veterans Administration health care providers. 
a total of 351 healthcare providers responded to a survey examining attitudes and clinical expectations toward two hypothetical vignette patients. The results indicate that there was a significant positive correlation between provider stereotypes and prejudice, and prejudice significantly predicted social distance. The study findings highlight the mediational role of prejudice on the relationship between negative stereotypes and discrimination toward individuals with serious mental illness. Healthcare providers should be aware of their negative stereotypes and automatic effective responses when offering treatment to individuals with serious mental illness. This research was supported by a grant from the VA Health Services Research and Development Service, the Central Arkansas Veterans Healthcare System, and the South Central Mental Illness Research, Education, and Clinical Center. Researchers have known for more than a decade that visible minority patients have poor service engagement and follow-up in mental health care. However, this information derived mostly from studies in the United States and the United Kingdom. While Canada has enjoyed a narrative of decreased discrimination and racism, some studies have started to point out the possibility of clinical bias toward visible minority patients in that country as well. The objective of this study was to determine whether visible minority patients with first-episode psychosis are at higher risk for treatment non-adherence than white patients and to elicit the perceptions of case managers regarding visible minority patients. Data for 168 patients referred to a tertiary first-episode psychosis clinic were collected by a chart review. For 110 patients, a questionnaire filled out by each patient's case manager collected quantitative and qualitative data regarding the case manager's perceptions of patient's insight, cooperation, and adherence to appointments and medication. The case manager's ratings of adherence to follow-up were then compared to data from the patient's charts. The results showed that black patients had poor follow-up compared to other patients. In case manager perceptions, there was no significant difference between ethnic groups in adherence to appointments and medication, insight, or family involvement. Although Canada is often perceived as tolerant to diversity, these data regarding poor follow-up in black patients indicate similar problems to those reported in other countries. Clinicians may have low expectations for visible minority patients and therefore notice more consistently when these patients adhere to treatment. The authors suggest that clinicians engage visible minority patients, especially black patients, early in treatment and create programs that are accessible and culturally sensitive. Treatment-resistant aggressive behavior is commonly observed in psychiatric patients with psychosis, especially in state mental health institutions and prison systems with high health care and societal costs. This retrospective case series reports a preliminary evaluation of treatment with dextromethorphan quinidine in four adults with significant history of psychosis-related aggression and impulsive behaviors. These patients received treatment for a period of at least 12 weeks. Three of the four patients responded to treatment based on clinical impressions of reduction in aggression and impulsive behavior. 
the one non-responder who had a significant history of multiple traumatic brain injuries showed mild improvement in agitation but continued to display impulsive self-harm behavior. Treatment with dextromethorphan quinidine was generally well tolerated and no metabolic, gastrointestinal, or cardiovascular side effects were observed during the study. These results provide preliminary evidence for dextromethorphanquinidine as a potentially safe and tolerable alternative to conventional treatment regimens for treatment-resistant aggression and impulsive behavior in patients with significant psychotic disorder. However, these results are preliminary and should be interpreted cautiously as further extended, double-blind, placebo-controlled studies with a larger sample size are needed. Although antibiotics have become the standard therapy in the treatment of pediatric autoimmune neuropsychiatric disorders associated with streptococcal infections and pediatric acute-onset neuropsychiatric syndrome, there are no conclusive studies to support their use, regardless of whether the infection is detected or not. In fact, beyond the recommendation to eradicate infection when present, conclusive studies that assess superiority of antibiotic versus placebo or other therapies in this patient population are lacking. In this review, the authors examine the literature for the best quality evidence supporting the practice-based use of antibiotics in these psychiatric conditions. Key findings include evidence for the existence of a subgroup of pediatric patients with obsessive-compulsive disorder that is sensitive to antibiotic treatment and immunomodulant therapy, independent of evidence of ongoing infection. The authors suggest that an evaluation of potential benefit and a personalized risk assessment for use of long-term antibiotic therapy be required for every patient. When evaluating an older patient for possible dementia, do you order neuroimaging? Work through this interactive CME case about an 87-year-old woman who presented with her family to Banner Alzheimer's Institute for evaluation and treatment of cognitive impairment. Go to primarycarecompanion.com to read this interesting case and earn CME credit. Suicide rates are significantly higher in those who identify as transgender or gender nonconforming compared to the overall population. Suicide risk factors include discrimination, family rejection, internalized transphobia, and being denied appropriate bathroom or housing access. This narrative review includes the most pertinent literature from the past 17 years on issues related to suicide among transgender or gender nonconforming individuals. Suicide prevention recommendations include addressing their personal issues, treating psychiatric or emotional problems, and facilitating better support from family. It is also important to assess the risk of suicide among these patients and discuss past experiences of prejudice or maltreatment to prevent further victimization. Have you ever wondered whether you could facilitate better collaboration with the patient who appears to reject your help during an acute medical event? Have you ever had trouble engaging a patient so that he or she would consider alternatives to decisions that are not in his or her best interest or even against medical advice? If you have, then the case vignettes and discussion presented in this issue's rounds in the general hospital section could prove useful.
The authors point out that a resistant patient is unlikely to change his or her mind because he or she is told to change. When discussing change, it is important to view patients as collaborators, and their values and beliefs should be considered an essential part of clinical negotiations. Treatment recommendations are more likely to be followed when physicians understand the patient's perspective, facilitate the patient's insight into his or her condition, increase patient participation in decision-making, and employ alliance-building techniques. Please visit us online at primarycarecompanion.com to find numerous case reports on a variety of topics. You can also browse interactive activities from our CME Institute. We update our website weekly with new postings, so there is always something new to explore. Thanks for joining me for this summary of offerings in our current issue of the Primary Care Companion for CNS Disorders. This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you will join me for the next installment of the PCC podcast, Your Place for CNS Soundbites.